1: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, we will hear from author and indie bookseller Emma Straub all about her lovely new book, This Time Tomorrow.
2: How do I tell the truest version of this story? I can. Time travel was the way. It was the way to do it.
1: But first, we're going to talk about something I think we could all benefit from. This is a conversation about ambition, success, and embracing mediocrity. As a young woman breaking into journalism, Emile Niazi said she had no choice but to be ambitious.
3: I you know, was living by myself. I was obviously paying all of my own bills. And, and I had a steady job. And I didn't have any parental monetary support. I only had my job.
1: Ambition represented security, an escape hatch from poverty, a career path that would lead to success and recognition. But like many young women of color in the workplace, Emil was passed over for jobs that she was qualified for. She felt stuck in these toxic workplaces that weren't giving her as much money as other less qualified people.
3: As much as I felt like I should, um, you know, quit my job and and, and I realized that, that in many ways I was being exploited and that I, you know, I was never going to advance. I
1: didn't feel safe quitting because I didn't have a backup plan. And all that was before she became a mother, let alone parenting during a global pandemic. So as of this year, Emile has had enough with ambition. Instead, she is choosing mediocrity. She's a freelance writer who wrote about losing her ambition for The Cut earlier this year. Emile, hi. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the title of the article is How the Pandemic Made Me Lose My Ambition. And I would actually like to start very basically with how you, as you were writing this, felt like you were defining the word ambition. It really was about this kind of specific um,
3: careerism, this specific um, notion that I was going to pursue titles and promotions um, and avenues within my job that would bring me a greater and greater sense of attachment to my job so more responsibility hopefully more pay um you know more seniority all of those kind of classic hallmarks of um you know I'm making it in the world uh that but that also involved um
1: giving more and more
3: of my time up up to my job
1: yeah I was gonna say it's interesting because you know often you could argue that that those sorts of you know like increased notoriety and like making more money and climbing the ladder or whatever also arguably can mean more self-worth. Whether or not it should is another question, right? But, you know, I think that's how so many of us have been trained.
3: Oh, definitely. Especially, I think, um, women um, of a certain age, and you know, like, uh, for me, that's, you know, a millennial woman, mm-hmm. um uh, I'm a woman of color. I'm, I'm also an immigrant. So, you know, ambition and, and that type of uh, advancement at work is not just something that, you know, my parents have long been hoping and praying for, um, but also something that that I myself had attached a lot of, as you say, worth to. And, and I've always thought that, you know, the better I was doing at work, the more I could fail in other Parts of my life <laughs> and everything would still be okay, and people would still think like, "Oh man, Emil ha- really has it together. Like yeah. she's killing it at work." Yeah,
1: that's real. Um,
3: but even though I could be like fall, you know, fall down drunk, <laughs> could be on my last, you know, my last tampon, and people are like, "Well, but you're you're doing really well at work." <laughs>
1: Who really cares about leakage anyway? It's fine. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, you have the sentence just in the first paragraph of this essay that says, I've abandoned the notion of ambition to chase the absolute middle of the road, mediocrity. I love this. It's something I feel like I've had a lot of really resonant conversations with my friends, especially during the pandemic, about this idea of, like, Let's just aim for B plus work, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's it's still like better than average, right? It's still putting in time, but it's just not stretching that extra mile that like could kill you, you know? Yes. I mean, I, I too have had so many
3: conversations about this with friends since before the pandemic that obviously, you know, took on kind of um, uh, increased urgency over the last couple of years um, about, you know, what it is we desire from our jobs when we're, especially when we're not getting those things back, yeah. Um does that change what we want? Is it harmful if we keep chasing something we're obviously not getting from our, our careers? Um, and I know that before the pandemic, when I would use the word um, mediocre, it was like, I dropped, you know, I dropped a bomb. In oh, the room. Yeah, and totally. especially my, my friends who are women were like, you know, that's not something
1: to aspire to. Well, we can't afford to, right?
3: We can't afford to exactly the same way that say, you know, white men can, but um but, but I also just sort of thought like why are we so afraid to be just okay at something? Like you know, what's wrong with it? Like what's wrong with just being happy enough or good enough? Um it's just so interesting how lopsided our relationship with, with that notion is. And I think like you said, by the time the pandemic hit and we were we were parenting and working or whatever it was that we were doing at the same time as working and managing this crisis, it was like, well, we suddenly realized that good enough is like, even better than
1: than we expected. Yeah, for sure. So I'm curious, how did it feel to write this for an employer?
3: <laughs> I think I I can only write something like this because I I am... A freelancer, and I do have that autonomy, mm. and I have that control over my time and the jobs that I take on. Of course, what is so funny about the world in which we live and capitalism in general is ever since I wrote that i've been having to turn work down because people love the piece and they want they want. To commission more pieces, um, from me. And even though I quite blatantly said that I wasn't
1: interested in working so hard. <laughs> The irony of like getting more offers for work, I think, is really fascinating. Is there still a part of your brain, you know, that has been trained in these like capitalist materialistic systems that that is like, oh, this would be a really great opportunity. I should probably do it. Or have you done enough like therapy or whatever to be like, yeah, no, this is extremely not for me.
3: Oh no, of course I'm sick. I'm a sick individual. I'm still like, yes, this is amazing. Let me <laughs> say, take more and more and more. And more, and more. Like, yeah. What if it goes away? What if I don't get this opportunity again? Mm-hmm. Um, I have to like, what I do is I just check in with, with my partner and I just like look at him and I go, I shouldn't mm-hmm. say yes to this. Right. And he's mm-hmm. like, no, just stop. Whatever it is you're going to say, don't do it because there's still this like little fear in me that um, even the work that I, the little work that I've um, laid claim to is just going to disappear. And then, and then what?
1: Aside from saying no, I'm curious what mediocrity looks like for you in any given day. You know, that word is so loaded. I w- I, every time I I mentioned
3: to people um, over the last few months, like, oh, I'm, I'm working on a piece about um, ambition and mediocrity. Everyone's ears would perk up and they would go like, say more. What, you know, I feel that way. I'm also breaking up with ambition. Hmm. But the idea of mediocrity, I think, is still a really hard one. Yeah, it was weird even saying that sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I think ambition, it's easier to define as something that, that can have a negative effect on our lives. Whereas I think mediocrity has for so long been, you um, Associated with like laziness, or or maybe you don't have the aptitude to be better than mediocre, and and that's um, you know an issue too. So for me, it, it what it really means is um, being comfortable and and happy with where I'm at and moving at my pace when it comes to goals and, and things that I want to accomplish. I also think there's this notion that maybe because I said that, that I don't have goals, and I don't want to accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, obviously, I, I am trying to just exist on vibes alone. But at the same time, you know, I'm a human being and, and you know, Maslow or uh, whoever mm-hmm. knows that I have needs and wants to. Um, but it's just about taking... Um, a different approach to those things and moving a little bit more slowly or if a day or two or three gets lost to, a, you know, a child's illness or I decide I just don't, you know, want to look at my phone for a few days. I think those are those sound so small, but those are things that, um, you know, have traditionally given me a ton of anxiety and kept me up like you know if my kids get sick how am I going to maintain the pace at which I'm used to working and it's like you don't right you just don't yeah yeah why
1: would you like at what cost would you you do that exactly yeah that's crazy it's so fascinating have you heard any feedback in particular that really spoke to you or that I don't know surprised you or that you find yourself thinking about since writing this piece I mean Definitely you know a, f- a few people have said that they quit their job,
3: not necessarily because of that piece, mm-hmm. but they just were excited to tell me because because <laughs> of everything I wrote um, but what I mean overall it's been just a ton of feedback where people are saying thank you so much for saying this i've been I've been thinking about this mm-hmm. and, and having these conversations, and it just was like such a relief to to hear it um, articulated out loud um, but what surprised me is honestly how many um Like tech people, CEOs, CFOs, like people in very traditional, hierarchical, um, defined, non-creative sectors read it and resonated with it. You know, maybe the piece was about ambition and and very specific to work, but the the themes and, and the feelings that it elicited, I think, spread far beyond just if you work remotely or not.
1: Well, I think it's all very exciting, and I really appreciate you taking the time, and I wish you nothing but good vibes. Thank you, and and likewise, and I hope
3: that we can be mediocre together in a better way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In just a minute, we hear from the delightful Emma Straub.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
1: Emma Straub and her husband own Books Are Magic. It's an independent bookstore in Brooklyn. She is also the author of several books, including most recently, This Time Tomorrow. This Time Tomorrow is about Alice. She was born and raised in New York. Her job is kind of meh, and her dad, Leonard, is dying, but she's hanging in. The night before she turns 40, though, she wakes up back in the bed and body of her 16-year-old self. That's all I'm going to say for the sake of spoilers. Emma, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you for having me. Is this your fifth novel? Is that right? Did I count them right?
2: Yes, it's my fifth novel and my sixth book. Nice. So I feel like,
1: I don't know, it's funny because, I mean, we have this time travel element. So obviously, I think you could argue that this is the book that is like maybe the least rooted in real life. Um, But I don't know. I mean, obviously, there are still so many truths in it. I'm just curious at what point you realized that you wanted to tell a time travel story
2: first I want to say that it's hilarious that people are like oh god you went crazy and wrote a time travel (laughs) novel because like this is by far by far my most autobiographical book right right and so it's hilarious because I can tell that like people are like so but it you do notice time travel, right? Well, I mean, it's,
1: and like, you've talked about this in other interviews and stuff too, but I mean, the thing about time travel is that like, it's normally so genre, right? That it's like, it's a sci-fi author doing that thing, right? So the fact that your other stuff, I mean, it does feel different, you know? And like, (laughs) I imagine it felt different for you to write too, yeah?
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, in, in, there were different challenges. Like, so to answer your first question, I, my father was in the hospital in, in, for several months Early in the pandemic. And he and I talked a lot about writing and fiction. He is a novelist, Peter Straub. It just, it, it was like a joke. It was like a joke that he was like, You should write about someone uh, visiting your father in the hospital. And I was like, Oh, hmm. yeah. But like, I wouldn't want to write a whole book that took place in the hospital. Like, that sounds terrible. And it just, it just, It was immediately just all part of the same, same idea, which was like, how do I tell the truest version of this story? I can. It's not a memoir. It's it's a novel and Mm -hmm. it's about these characters, Alice and Leonard, but, but yeah, time travel was the way it was the way to do it. (laughs) So
1: throughout the book, there are references to like what I like to call kind of time travel canon, you know, mm-hmm. and, like Peggy Sue got married, Back to yeah. the Future, even Superman. I think about even like more recently, Russian Doll on Netflix. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you? I mean, I think time travel is one of my favorite genres. I think just because I mean, you can fuck up a lot, you know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, do you? Yeah. Ha- do you have a favorite? Um, I mean, I love all of those things that you just mentioned. Like mm. Peggy Sue got married was was probably one of the movies that I watched the most uh, as a, like a child or like Mm. a tween Mm -hmm. or a teenager. And I would bet that like, if you looked back, it was just on like TBS or whatever, (laughs) like every Saturday for some reason, like they just bought the rights and they were like, well, I guess we'll show Peggy Sue again. (laughs) Like that's like, so many things that I, love and like are a deep part of my like psychological makeup were like, that's how they got there. It's like, Oh, I didn't choose this at all. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that, I think that the reason that, you know, the reason that there's, there's, there are so many that all of us can name is because you can do it differently every single time. Mm. And it, it was as, as fun as I thought it would be mm. to write one. So yeah. if anybody out there is like, should I write a time travel novel? I think yes,
1: I think you should. Oh, I love that. It's so interesting too, because I feel like time travel really emphasizes the power of nostalgia. I think that's something that's really present in this book, especially when you think about the fact that it's set in New York, which is a city that's known for how quickly it can change. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, I mean, over the course of this, have you thought about like where or when you would go if you could?
2: You know, I think I would go, I would love to go back to my childhood um, and just and sort of inhabit spaces that I inhabited mm-hmm. as a child and mm-hmm. to like, to just be there again and, have you know, that sort of like sensory surround sound, <laughs> you mm. know, of like, like being in your childhood house that I would love and, and to see my parents um, younger. I mean, that that is really the most irresistible thing I could imagine.
1: Yeah, that's a really beautiful element of this book is that, you know, when Alice is 16, she sees kind of how how vibrant and vital her dad was, even when at that point she already th- kind of thought he was an old guy, you know,
2: yeah, yeah, and
1: there is a real sweetness to that it's I think it speaks too to that idea you know, like we never would they just always seem old to us to a certain extent, mm-hmm. you know,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, my parents were in their mid thirties when they had me, mm-hmm. and that certainly seemed ancient (laughs) um and now i'm 42 Mm -hmm. and like let's not talk about that you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah my parents were in their like mid late
1: 20s when they had me and it's such a trip to think about like oh y'all were just partying like you know to really reframe like when i was a small child like y'all were just children having fun with children (laughs) you know it's crazy yeah so you mentioned Alice's dad is a novelist, your dad is a novelist. Um he in the book he wrote a book about time travel and and as a result Alice has hung out with a lot of authors and there's this moment when she's thinking about a conversation around the idea that um that fiction is a myth and I just like my brain just hooked right onto that. I loved that concept. <laughs> Um, and I don't know, maybe the fact that you say this is the most autobiographical novel that you've written, but it's also got time travel in it, is perfectly testament to that. But <laughs> but can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I just think it's a really interesting concept.
2: You know, I, I I have to be careful because it 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 is a novel. It is one hundred percent a novel. It's a novel that I built with characters and structure and you know all of the tools that I have learned Mm -hmm. over my career as a novelist um and I think that it succeeds um as a as an object that is unconnected to me you know that like anyone can pick up and read and just experience this story Um, but for me it's all about me and my dad Mm -hmm. and, and, and I can't really, you know, it's, it's tricky for me to sort of totally separate that out when I, when I talk about it, Mm -hmm. um, because that's where it came from and that's where it took me, you know, like that's, um, that was where I wanted to go when I was writing this, like, you know, it was early pandemic times. It was, um, you know, I started writing when when I finally had childcare again in the fall mm-hmm. of 2020. Um, after you know, certainly the toughest months of my life. I, and I know I'm not alone in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially for either children of you know parents who were sick or the mother of two small children who all of a sudden were home and just with me. Um, but I, yeah, I wanted out, I wanted out of my house. I wanted out of 2020. Um, and because I was so worried about my dad, like that was where I wanted to go. Uh, I wanted to go to our kitchen table on the Upper West side. um, and just hang out with him, like not do something exciting. <laughs> like, <laughs> my dad has always, uh, we, 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 like to describe him as an indoor cat. Um, he, you know, and he is, and guess what? So am I, and so are my children. And, um, and so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do the indoor cat stuff, you know, mm-hmm. I wanted to watch Jeopardy, um, and, and just feel safe. That's really sweet.
1: Yeah. That, I'm, and it felt nearly impossible not that long ago, yeah. given yeah. what we've all been through, you know? So I feel like we should, your dad is okay, right?
2: He's okay. He's okay. He's about five blocks away from where oh, I am right now. That's so sweet. I mean, to go back to the idea of, of fiction as myth, you know, like I just, um, I do think that like good fiction is, is just true it's true Mm -hmm. that's why we respond to it yeah um and you know the the truth of this book was that i wrote this novel sort of in celebration of my relationship with my dad and i thought he was gonna die and and then he didn't um which meant that i got to give this to him Mm -hmm. And which means now he gets to listen to me on a thousand podcasts talking about how great he is. And like, I think that's pretty amazing. That's really amazing. Hi, Peter.
1: (laughs) So the other segment in this week's episode, along with you, is with um, a woman who wrote a piece for The Cut about losing her ambition during the pandemic.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And how mm -hmm. she's
1: just really all about like embracing the idea of mediocrity and, you know, like stopping just saying yes to things because it'll help her career and really thinking, you know, and she's a mom too, like thinking about like what really is important and how to, you know, focus on those things instead of sacrificing for these like ambiguous, you know, goals or notions of what success should be. Yeah. Um. And I noticed you actually there was a profile of you also in the cut recently that that yeah. talked about you. It was a very brief mention that the, you say the pandemic really shifted your attitude about time and work and attention. Yeah. And I just was really curious about that and was wondering if you could elaborate on it a little bit.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I have I have always, always since I was, you know, like in my early twenties and trying to be a novelist um, for the first time, I have always been extremely ambitious and driven and like confident and like, you know, forward, ho kind of, kind of energy. And the first part of the pandemic where you know, everything was closed and we were really home and there was no school and my husband was at our bookstore shipping things out and I was just home with the kids. Like it was the longest period of time that I have ever gone without writing. Hmm. Um, and, and I really missed it and I missed being in the bookstore and I missed, I mean, I missed all of my jobs. Um, but I, it also felt like a good sort of reset button in terms of like, wait, okay, (laughs) if, if the world is literally like, Mm -hmm. uh, falling apart Mm -hmm. in all of these ways that we have seen, um, like why am I hustling so hard all the time? Like, you know, I still want to sell books. I do. Um, I mean both at the bookstore, but as but I mean, also as the a, ones with their name novelist. On probably too. Yeah. yeah like I, you know, sense. I do. Like I wanna be on all those lists and I want to have lots of readers and all all of those things. Um but but now I there's like another little voice <laughs> that's just asking like okay but okay but why like mm. what's that going to do and I'm trying to learn how to be the kind of person who really takes breaks and um, <laughs> like doesn't work or look at her phone while on vacation. That's my goal. We'll see. I'll report back in like 2025 and tell you how it's going. (laughs) I love that. I feel
1: like even a year from now, we could just check back in and be like, yeah, it's not going to be good. It's It's going to be be great. Emma. It's going to be fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations on the book. And thank you so much for chatting with me about it. This was such a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right. That's it for this week. Thank you as always for listening along. This is the time where I tell you we have a newsletter and I bet you would like it. We send it out every Friday morning. It's a great way to stay up to date on new Nerdette episodes and Nerdette producer Anna and I also put fun links into weird animal news and new books and delicious looking recipes. Anna really is, is on top of the weird animal news, y'all. I'm telling you, you can sign up for that at wbez.org slash Maggie Sivet builds our beautiful newsletter for us each week. The show is produced by me and Anna Baumann. And our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. Hang in there, y'all, and we'll see you next week.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series.